Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Hindu Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. Uh, I am your host, Shandeep Saha, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Athabasca University, a research and distance learning university dedicated to breaking down barriers to learning by offering open and flexible educational options across the disciplines. For a range of courses and programs offered at AU, please check out our website, www.athabascau.ca. And today, I am so happy to have Dr. Dione Moody on the podcast. She's the author of a book published in 2018 by Oxford University Press, entitled The Making of a Modern Temple, Kalikat and Golgatha. Dione, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself, uh, what you teach, where you teach, what your areas of research are. So I teach at the University of Oklahoma. I'm an assistant professor of religious studies, so I teach courses on general overviews of religious studies. I teach our theories and methods course, and I also teach courses on Hinduism and uh, religion and nationalism in India. And my research, very broadly, um, I look at the various forms that Hinduism takes in modern India. And uh, very specifically, I focus on the city of Kolkata. Um, As you know, Kolkata is really ground zero for Indian modernity. And so it's an especially fascinating place to study modern Hinduism. Wow, that's a perfect way to launch into my next question. And is, um, what drew you to the particular topic of Kaligat? Yeah, so I've been visiting Kaligat ever since 2002, so for a very long time. Um, And it's always a place that's really fascinated me. And when I got into my graduate work, and I learned about Kolkata, and I learned about the Bajralok in Kolkata, uh, you know, this is a place that, that really uh, fostered the production of an Indian middle class, what we, we call a middle class, sometimes confusingly, but it's the, an elite set of Indians um, that was uh, produced through basically Western educational institutions in the 19th century um, in this capital of the British Empire in India. Um, and so this is a place where people like Tagore and Vivekananda are highly revered um, uh, Hindu reform movements basically shaped Hinduism in that in that time period, um, in such a way that that quote unquote good Hinduism was basically monotheistic, mm. anti iconoclastic, anti ritualistic, um, and yet here's this temple Kaligat, uh, not just a temple, but a temple dedicated to the goddess Kali who has, uh, you know, a garland of skulls around her neck. She's holding a severed head and a bloodied sword. Um, And so so that's really what the book tries to get at. Like, how do you think about the site of the Bengali Bajralok and, wow, Kali worship? Um, And and Kaligat, by the way, is a place where animal sacrifice takes place on a daily basis. So that uh, juxtaposition was something that really fascinated me and when I tried to learn more about it in an academic context, I realized, wow, there's really not much going on there. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, when you're looking for a dissertation project, that's exactly what you want, something that hasn't been worked on before. 
So what do we know, um, say, about the 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 construction of the temple because uh, and 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 the the historical origins of the temple in Zimbabwe? Because there is the first of all, it might be good just to tell our readers a little bit about what is you've talked about it, the temple in terms of Bengali culture, but in terms of its place in Hinduism as a whole, because there is a whole sort of important origin story behind Kalika. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so what what is that origin story for readers who do not know what the sort of cultural religious significance of Kalighat is to mm-hmm. to Hindus as a whole? And then what do we know about the historical origins of the temple and its image? Because what I understand about the image, at least, um, is that the the image as we see it now, you know, different aspects of it, like the tongue and whatnot, for example, have you know have been are part of donations, if I recall right. that. Are, mm-hmm. That are that are from the late nineteen that are that are stemming from the nineteenth century. So we're not looking necessarily the image as we see it is not necessarily some sort of ancient pre nineteenth century image. Or sure. is it? Yeah. Well, yeah. So uh, okay. So there's a lot a lot in that set of questions. So uh, yeah. uh, theologically, the claim to fame for this temple it's that it's a Shakti Peet, so literally a seat of the goddess. Uh, so there's this story about um, uh, uh, Sati, the goddess whose father Daksha is holding a sacrifice. Uh, her husband Shiva is not invited to the sacrifice, and she is so upset by this that she goes and she immolates herself um, on the, the the fire of uh, in the in her father's ritual. Um, and Shiva is so distraught by this that he picks up his wife and carries her uh, burnt body all over. The quote unquote world, which happens to be South Asia uh, in this imagining. Um, and he is so distraught that his dance of destruction threatens to ruin the entire universe. And so Shiva comes along um, and cuts off little bits of, of her body uh, with his chakra, his, his round circular uh, weapon. And everywhere her body lands, a manifestation of the goddess springs up. Um, her four right toes, minus her big toe, apparently landed in what is now Calcutta. Um, and that is the origin story of Kaligat. So it's a Shakti Peet. It's where her body literally is. Um, and it also connects Kaligat to a whole set of other goddess temples across South Asia. So, uh, and so, you know, people will say, okay, so there's Dakshineshwar in the northern part of the temple, which by the way, when I talk about my project, uh, especially to academics, they're like, oh yeah, I know a famous Kali temple in Kolkata. It's, it's Dakshineshwar. It's where Ramakrishna is. Uh, right? right. And, um, I was going to ask you about that. We'll, yeah. we'll maybe we'll bring that up in a bit because I'm sort of wondering that there is a whole, I wouldn't call it a triangle, but I mean, there's a trio of big, big temples there. There's, there's, or no, there's four. I mean, there's Dakshineshwar, Kalighat, uh, uh, Tarapit and um, and and Tarakeshwar, which is admittedly a, a Shaivite mm-hmm. temple, but still, mm-hmm. it's uh, mm-hmm. I'm sort of wondering about the relationship between those four, but we'll get back to that in a yeah. minute. So keep going. <laughs> yeah. So um, and so what what my interlocutors will say is all of those other temples are important, right? Um, but if you want the real thing, you've got to go to Kaligat. Uh, so mm. you know, one person put it this way, you know. Okay, so God's everywhere, and there are churches everywhere, but Rome mm. is special, and there are mosques <laughs> everywhere, but Mecca is special. I've never heard okay? that's great, right? I mean, this is a pretty major <laughs> um, analogy to be making, a pretty um, striking one. And he says Kali is everywhere, but Kali Kali God is special. Okay, so this is a really, really important temple. 
Now, what we know about the historical origins of the temple are actually very, very little. Um, we know that it uh, reference to Kaligat is made in some versions of the late 15th century-ish text, the Manusha Mongol, um, but it didn't really become a popular site of worship until the 17th and, and really the 18th century, uh, kind of ironically, because the British hated this place. It like epitomized everything that was wrong with Hinduism for them. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it became a lot more popular when they built the infrastructure that made travel to and from this site a lot more feasible. And as you say, um, it is, okay, so we don't, okay, so the, the temple that stands today was built in 1809. Uh, construction took place between 1799 and 1899, uh, sorry, 1809 by the Shibonaroi Roy family who, was the, who were the Zamandars of this area. They built that temple. We know that it was replacing an existing temple, but we don't know for how long the previous temple stood. Um, so one assumes that the black stone that is the Morti of Kali, the Svayambu Morti of Kali in the temple, one assumes that that predates, uh, you know, the 1809 temple. I am, I'm sure that that is the case. Um, but yes, as you say, all of the accoutrement, the tongue, the crown, um, the, the bangles, all of those things uh, have been added to Kali incrementally over time. The arms. So... My next question uh, then is um, mm-hmm. why Kaligat? And if and I think that before that it's probably worth talking about sort of the big three, so to speak, Kali temples mm-hmm. in Bengal because we have Kaligat mm-hmm. smack dab in Calcutta. We had the Kineshwar uh, associated with Ramakrishna Vivekananda and the Ramakrishna mission outside Calcutta. And then further, further away, mm-hmm. we have Tarapit. Right, and you would think that maybe Tarapit of the three might be more of the focus because we're talking cremation mm-hmm. grounds, people meditating on skulls. So the legends go. We have the eccentric Bama Kappa um, over over there, and then of course we have the mm-hmm. the image itself. But yet, why wouldn't something with that type of atmosphere be the focus of? of this type of discourse, but yet it's Kalighat. Is it Kalighat just because it's Kalighat is the, um, you know, because yeah. it's in Calcutta, so it's I, I more think, visible. Yeah. And the Kanishar, I, I guess, is just already fashioned in the line of Bhadrog values by virtue of the Ramakrishna mission. In Rukhana, right. So, yeah. I mean, I think one of the answers is absolutely it's in Kolkata. Uh, and so, what I do in my first chapter is I look at the ways that late 19th century, so 1891 to 1902, about uh, late 19th century Bengali Hindus, uh, the way that they write the historical account of Kaligat. Like I said, we don't actually know very much of the historical account, um, but I look at four authors in that chapter who who do a great deal of historical analysis of, uh, of Kaligat. They completely disagree about all aspects of the temple and its history. Uh, and yet what they're doing in those works is that they are staking a claim to the city that says this is Kali's Kshetra. This is Kali's sacred land. And the reason that is particularly important because is because in the 19th century, you've got British historians who are writing historical narratives of the city. Um, they'd written in the city before, but this is the point in time where they're writing about the city, the origin stories of the city. And to pick up a history book on Calcutta today is to read the same kind of narrative. 
This is a city built by and for the British. It was founded by Job Charnock, who landed on its shores in 1690. Um, the, the city in 1990 actually celebrated its 300th year anniversary, marking Job Charnock's arrival as the beginning right. of the city, right? So right. what, these, what these historians right. are doing, these Bengali Hindu historians are doing, that's so powerful and empowering is that they're saying, no, this isn't yours. This is ours. This is, this is um, the founder of Calcutta is in fact Kali. And it wasn't, you know, you guys and your, your broad boulevards and your giant buildings that make this, this place great. It's all of those Hindus who Kali has been attracting to the city, those devout Hindus who Kali has been attracting to this area since quote unquote time immemorial that make this place great. Um, so it was, but then how do those guys actually go about reconciling um, sort of the Brahmo Samaj uh, Hindu reform movement and that sort of strain right. of discourse that's going on with what they're trying to accomplish with, with Kali, as you said, where sacrifices right. are... <laughs> Are occurring on a daily basis, right? Like they, that's a big balancing act that they have. Absolutely, to and it's fascinating to see the way that they do it because what they say is um, that uh, that um, values such as monotheism uh, and nonviolence have actually been in the present, been temp- present, sorry, present at the temple um, since t- time immemorial. So they'll say things like, um, "Well, there's only one God, but Kali is a manifestation of that God." Or they'll say, um, sure, animal sacrifice happens at the temple, but it's not something that the founders of the temple really did. Uh, you know, that's something that tantricas came in and did, or that's something that, you know, uh, people from the villages do, but that's not, uh, you know, really what the temple is about. So they'll admit that these things exist, and they'll admit that, that say, uh, people who don't know as much um, will interpret the temple in different ways than they do. But they will read a lot of those those uh, values onto the temple and and write them but, into the the temple's yeah. history. But then that's again, there's the the then that opens up a whole other can of worms for them, doesn't that? In terms of their argument, because uh, while tantric culture, tantric religious practices are an intimate part of Bengali religious culture, and um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, how do you, so it's also, is it meant to be a critique of Tantra as well? Or are they just saying that Tantra is valid, but it isn't being performed properly? And then number two, if, if, if it was a case of, you know, villagers do that type of thing, did they ever raise any concerns about having it stopped in the temple if that wasn't part of, quote unquote, the original temple tradition? Right. Well, what they will say is, well... Uh, so, by the way, I don't think it's a critique of Tantra um, in general. I think that a lot of, I mean, they don't explicitly go there in these texts, but I think that they would think about Tantra in a sort of Arthur Avalon-esque kind of a way. Uh, so they're not thinking right. about the kind of nitty gritty <clears throat> of Tantra. And so what they'll do is they'll uh, distance themselves uh, from the animal sacrifice. You had a second question, though, that I just uh, okay. flew out of my head. What was the second question? Oh, yeah. The second question was, um, if for these early writers that you're talking about, I mean, um, they're saying that, well, okay, blood sacrifice, the animal sacrifice was not always part of the, was not what the original founders intended. It was something that just oh, so came, was, came in later. But then, yeah. It, yeah. 
Yeah, why not stop it? So why not stop it? So a friend recently said to me, yeah, I mean, if you get rid of animal sacrifice, you may as well just get rid of collie worship altogether. (laughs) Uh, Which is this one particular view. But but yeah, I mean, animal sacrifice is so deeply tied to the worship of Kali. And the thing is, it has been stopped at all of the other Kali temples in the city, except for maybe once a year on Durga Puja. Um, on right. uh, the last day of Durga Puja, they'll, they'll sacrifice a goat. But at Kali God, it happens daily. So I had one of the priests at the temple, one of the Shabbats, tell me, yeah, I have, uh, he says, well, m- my guru is at um, Bulur Mat, Ramakrishna's, uh, Vivekananda's um, place uh, near Dakshineshwar. And since Dakshineshwar no longer allows animal sacrifice, he asks me to sacrifice goats at Kali God for him. So Kali Ghat becomes <laughs> even more important in terms of animal sacrifice since it's not going on oh, elsewhere. Right. And, and right. So, some, so there are lots of uh, the third chapter of the book looks at renovation projects. So people who are middle-class citizens who are trying to clean up the temple, clear out the temple, get rid of the beggars and the hawkers on, and the pandas, uh, some of those uh, ritual guides uh, who guide people through the temple. And they're also right. trying to clean up the, the physical image uh, in terms of, you know, cleaning up the floors and getting rid of blood. They're not seriously calling for an end to animal sacrifice. I think it just wouldn't happen. I think it just wouldn't happen. So what they've done instead is they've built a higher wall around the sacrificial enclosure so that people don't have to see it if they don't want to. They have to see yeah. it happen too. Yeah. But then how does that, how does that work with say our colleague Rachel McDermott who who's talking about this softening mm-hmm. of 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 Kali, for example, in 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 devotional poetry, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, we're going for Rachel's argument, I guess, is has been that, you know, the goddess goes from being a fiery sort of bloodthirsty goddess to almost this doll like sort of domesticated figure in 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 some strands of more modern Bengali devotional poetry. Mm. And, and on top of that, you know, I, I, I'm vividly coming to mind right now as you're talking to me about this is a, uh, is a poem by, you know, Ghazi Nazrul mm-hmm. Islam, one of his very famous de- uh, devotional songs to Kali, where he's saying that, you know, it, he's, he's allegorizing everything. So the, 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 an- the animal sacrifice is the sacrifice of his vices and, and, and so on and so forth to the goddess. So in other words, that it's not the animal sacrifice that's important. Mm. It's, 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 it's more about sacrificing all those, uh, vices that we have to the goddess so we can become, you know, better devotees or whatever, whatever the, the case may be. And, and, and still trying to reconcile in my mind then, what is it that's giving Kali Ghat sort of its durability here that it's able to sort of withstand that type of di- that type of other discourse, yeah. which wants to completely downplay that type of that type of um, that type of religious yeah. practice? And, um, you know, like how does that? Even I mean, work? the lovely thing about ritual, right, is that you can interpret it however you would like to. Um, and so there are plenty uh, of people who go to the temple. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of people who go to the temple and who say, you know, I'm not going to physically kill a goat, but I am going to, yeah, exactly as you say, I'm going to sacrifice my ego to the goddess and that's my sacrifice. Um, there are people who will sacrifice a gourd or a coconut instead. 
Um, so there are all various right. ways that you can reimagine sacrifice that don't necessitate animal sacrifice. Um, and yet there are plenty of people and there's enough demand, sometimes, as I said, even secretive demand for it to happen, that I just don't see it going right. anywhere. Um, but by the way, throughout all of this, you know, in terms of Rachel McDermott's thesis, um, they're all, all of the devotees are approaching Kali as Ma. So I really think that that softening has exactly. absolutely happened. Um, that has happened and animal sacrifice still happens. Um, both, both of them are going on at the same time. So there's just, um, an amazing sort of tension yeah. here that just seems to somehow sort of, it always seems to keep its, its, its mm-hmm. balance. And I, I don't know if you think that's in part just uh, when you're talking to your, your, uh, devotees at Kaligat, for example, that again, I'm drawing again upon my, more, my knowledge of, of Shakta Padavali, mm-hmm. of the Shakta devotional poetry where the goddess can be everything. Right. Exactly. You know, the goddess can be gentle one moment, can be fierce the next, can be in a good mood one moment and really in a bad yeah. moment the next. We'll accept just all she wants is a, is a, a jabafhul, the, mm. the hibiscus that's considered sacred to her. But the other, other moments I've heard songs where, 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 uh, she's saying that, you know, if you become a widow from dancing on Shiva's body, uh, how, how are we going to, you can't, you will have mm-hmm. to eat meat. You have to be vegetarian. So if that happens, how can we continue mm-hmm. with the animal sacrifice? Mm-hmm. It's like sort of this interesting sort of tension, I would think. I mean, is that what they say? That mother's everything to everybody. So yeah. Yeah. In, in fact, this calls to mind when I was talking about this, ten, this exactly this tension you're talking about in a class of undergraduates. And I had a student say to me, what tension? My mom's my mom is fierce. She says to me all the time, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of this world. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, being loving, yes. right, I know. But being loving and fierce <laughs> don't have to be at odds with one another. They can be um, intertwined um, parts of our notions of the maternal. I will say, uh, we were talking about this before we hit the record button on the interview, um, about these, these legal mm-hmm. wranglings in, in Kalikat. And I just found this so fascinating for, because I could draw so many parallels with my own research right. on Pushti Marit. So, first of all, what are the nature of the wranglings? Uh, so for our audience who don't know about this. And, um, I mean, does this really mark a turning point these, uh, for the image of the yeah. temple as a whole? I mean, it was kind of the sense that I got from, from, from the book that, that, these legal rulings kind of set Kali Ghat in terms of its public persona as an institution on a, on a different. Yes, different for sure. I'm, I'm really glad uh, that you like that second chapter. In some ways it is the most complex because I'm sorting through hundreds of pages of legal documents, um, mm-hmm. but it's also, it really mm-hmm. is the crux of the book. Uh, and so what happens in the early 20th century is that, these notions of orderly bureaucracy are brought to bear on the temple and a a notion of uh, a critique of the priesthood is also brought to bear on the temple. And um, Kali's proprietors, her her Shavayats, her her Brahmin priests, are taken to court uh, because it is said that they are pocketing Kali's money. You know, all of these devotees is becoming a really popular temple. All of these devotees are coming to the temple from all over the country, all over the world. And look, these priests are pocketing that money. They're, they're not, um, they're using it to make themselves rich. And so what the courts say, and this is at the district and then 
state and then actually the, the national level. This reaches the Supreme Court of India in 1961. What they say is, yeah, we should have some sort of ruling that would mean that the priests don't make a huge amount of money. Um, and th- this rests on the idea of what's called juristic personality. So technically, yeah, right. this is this really interesting legal uh, um, fixture, legal, legal term, term right? Yeah. Um, that the income that comes to the temple is literally Kali's money. The goddess Kali owns that money. However, just like uh, another you know, person in society who can't take care of their worldly affairs, um, you know, an elderly person or a child or someone like that, they need um, other people. Um, in this case, they need human proprietors to take care of that money. So the money is technically Kali's. So then the conversation is, okay, well, who controls Kali's money? Money. So the Shavayats right. would say, um, and the Shavayat literally means one who serves. So these are the people who mm-hmm. are the, the Brahmin proprietors of the temple. They say, well, Kali entrusted us with the both the responsibility and the privilege of managing her finances, um, as well as everything else that goes along with the temple, when she asked us to be their, her priests. And the court said, well, that may be well and good, but the money shouldn't only be going to what you think it should be going to. It should be going to take care of Kali. You can have an income, but then the rest of the money should go to things like charitable causes, religious talks, renovations. And they went a step further. They said, you know, this is a temple that is used by so many members of the public that this should not be considered a private temple anymore. This should be considered a public temple. And so they overstepped the initial complaint that was brought to the, to the court that was about uh, the division of Kali's assets. And they declared Kali got a public temple. And what this da- does, and this is why it's su- such an important part of the book, is it, it changes the very purpose of the temple in the eyes of the law. So whereas it used to be the case that the purpose of the temple was to care for Kali, um, and to facilitate uh, um, um, uh, devotion between Kali and devotees and, and to have Kali's needs taken care of. It's now the case that the purpose of the temple is to take care of the public. So the public now is, comprises a temple committee. Uh, so members of the Hindu public that are selected by various civic, uh, religious and educational bodies in the city. Um, so by Calcutta University, um, by Sanskrit College, um, and by a number of other groups, uh, appointees by them make up the Kaligat Temple Committee. So this is a public committee um, that oversees half of Kali's a- assets, um, and the priests get the other half, half of the asset, assets. Now, then the courts, when they said that the money had to be spent on things like charitable causes and religious talks and renovations... They're not saying, well, that's what Kali wants. They're saying that's what the public needs, right? And then when you see the renovation projects being carried out at Kaligat today through the idiom of the the PIL or the public interest litigation, again, what petitioners are saying is I haven't been directly wronged by a priest at the temple, but it, it would be a benefit to the public. The public has been wronged. Um, by the things that are going on at the temple. And so it needs to be cleaned up, for example. And so the idea that the temple is public actually has these ramifications far beyond what the original petitioner in the lawsuit had in mind. 
do devotees who are watching all of this really mm-hmm. care? Right. That's the question. Um, well, <laughs> the answer is yes and no. Um, so definitely I met a number of people who said like, you know, what renovation efforts or what controversy, uh, what modernization campaigns, you know, I just, you know, it's a crowded temple. I go early in the morning, I give my flower, I give my, you know, 10 rupees and I leave and, and I say my prayers and, and I leave and that's it. You know, what, what's the problem? So, so certainly there were plenty of uh, people who were saying that. And then there were particular moments where devotees actually did care a great deal. So one ex- one example of this is that uh, during the time of my research in 2011 and 2012, there was the high, the Calcutta High Court issued a ban on devotees from entering the inner sanctum of Kaligat. Uh, the way, yeah, oh. the way that Kaligat operates is that you know by I mean. Devotees go into the inner sanctum. You have to wait in a very long line, in a hot, sweaty, crowded line. Um, you wait for a very long time. You get into the very cramped inner sanctum. Um, you, it's sort of just accepted that people uh, touch the feet of the goddess. Um, so, yeah, so right. in other parts of yeah. India, touching the murti is, is a no-no. But here, that's what happens. So the idea of banning devotees from entering the inner sanctum would completely take away that, uh, that ability. So what happened the next day is you had just a flock of people to the temple and journalists um, and all sorts of protest groups. And they were saying, uh, some of them were saying, well, you know, we have to touch, touch Kali's feet one last time. This might be the last time in our lives we get to touch Kali's feet. So we have to do it. Um, and others were, were saying things like, well, Kali must be really upset with us that she has allowed this court ruling to proceed, uh, right? Always giving uh, sovereignty to, to the goddess uh, for these particular voices anyway. Um, and so they said, so we have to pray to Kali uh, to please have this ruling overturned. Uh, well, as it turns out, that ruling was overturned because it was clearly wow. such a big issue that, that devota- devotees were really going to balk at it. This raises kind of another issue be- about which was really striking for me in the book. And and honestly, I never really thought about it um, this way until I read mm. your book. It's about the agents of modernity mm-hmm. in the book, the the people who are bringing bear yeah. to this. Um, you you're talking not just about uh, people in Calcutta. Mm-hmm. This is not just a Calcutta based mm-hmm. issue in a sense. I mean. You have NGOs right. that have been formed around this. You have NRIs. Right. That are uh, involved in in part of this discussion of modernity around the temple. You have, and this was the one that really struck me with that: the judges yeah. who are making the 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 rulings. And you talk a lot um, uh, in in the second chapter about the, the judicial activism that's mm-hmm. going on in in India. So, like, who are these agents? How far do they? Where are they coming from? And how are they all? bringing their voices directly or indirectly to bear on the, on, on, on the shaping of God. Um, Well, they're everywhere. (laughs) Um, One of the things that I wanted to do in the book is to, you know, we talk a lot about the Bengali Bajralok, but we don't necessarily look at the, um, you know, Bengali Bajralok in the 19th century was formed through Western educational institutions those Western educational institutions have not stopped operating. Um, And the deeper cultural shifts that occurred at that time in terms of 
the production of uh, individual subjectivities, all of that is still very much going on. Um, and so it's just that they have different tools at their disposal now. So I, I, one of the points that I'm making in the book is, you know, in the 19th century, what were these, what were middle-class actors going to do about Caligot? There, there wasn't a conception that they could, you know, take it over and, and try and, you know, right. um, change anything. You know, they could write about it, but that's a very um, external observer kind of a thing to do. Like you, you can, anyone can write about anything, right? Um, well, they had the means to publish their writings, which is what, um, because they were middle class. But when the elite takes over um, institutions of governments and the judiciary in, uh, in independent India, then they are not only the lawyers, but also uh, the judges. They are the city council members. They are the people who run uh, tourism agencies. And so the middle class is really, is now an Indian, an, an elite, right? Um, and so their attitudes are shifting according to the various um, political and economic spectrums within which they're operating. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And they are they are now the petitioners, but they're also the ones making the rulings. Uh, they're the ones who beseech legal actions, but they're also the ones who are adjudicating lawsuits. So, mm. so that so and and this is really the the what I'm arguing um, is that there is a turning point that we're witnessing that we have been witnessing I, um, over the past long century, um, in which. It's not just that middle class ideas are being brought to bear on the temple, but that the middle classes now control temples, at least in an official right. way. I mean, I, the whole fourth chapter is about the fact that like a lot of this isn't working, but in a, in official capacity, uh, the middle classes are, are are have the ability, the legal ability to run temples now. So, in what way is it not working? So, there's a lot of resistance to what they're doing. Um, so the Shavayats, for example, uh, uh, they will hear the rulings that happen and they'll say, well, um, you know, we have to wait until there are actually orders and or we have to wait until, you know, there's police action that's going to enforce those orders. Um, so the court, the, one of my lawyer friends uh, in Calcutta says the, the courts have the bark, but not the bite. Um if the people mm. on the ground are not willing to to abide by those orders and the people in power are mm. not willing to like send in a police force which they have not been so far um then change doesn't really happen and then of course there are all of these hundreds um actually you know it must be a, a couple thousand um beggars and hawkers and pundas who operate in this area who just physically refuse to move. And if they physically refuse to move, then the sheer number is so overwhelming that, you know, I think there's there's little that can be done. And I make the parallel in the book to um, Operation Sunshine, which was a movement uh, to clear all of the hawkers off of all public streets in Calcutta, which oh, yeah. worked for about 24 hours <laughs> because there are just so many of them. And there's just There's so, many so many of them. And frankly, um, city residents uh, count on their services. And so, um, right. 
so even while there might be some, you know, ideal sense of a middle class city where, uh, sorry, a city where the middle class gets to do as they please, you know, they're living with lots of other people who don't see it that way and who, who just refuse to respond. So when I think about um, what you're what you just reflecting on what you're talking about now, um, is there a sense that there's sort of resistance to the, to some of these changes and, 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 and whatnot that are, you know, that are being talked about in the courts? Is there part of the resistance on the ground? Because there's um, sort of a, a feeling of a sense like a, a, if these things happen, there's a loss of cultural identity going on or uh, um, if we renovate the temple this way and do this, um, there's a sense that we're losing a part of our history because because sometimes I think um, uh, what comes to mind are, are say, for example, um, some of the Swaminarayan temples in Gujarat where the original temples over a lengthy period of time have been completely renovated to the point that they don't necessarily look like mm. What they were originally, uh, how they were originally constructed, especially you know, as you know, you had the gold roof to it, and then you had the tile to it, and then you had the marble mm-hmm. to it, and then the next thing you know, and then of course you're accommodating a huge number of of devotees that are coming in. So the inside, you know, gets air conditioning, mm-hmm. gets fans, mm-hmm. and everything like that. And so, and you see this too with the Shirdi Temple, and uh, um, you know, in, in Maharashtra as well. And uh, I've <clears throat> this is part of a lot of my own research on the Pushti Marg is about the same thing that if we start changing the way the temple looks and we start changing the way this happens, we're losing. It, it's, it's not about elite mm-hmm. modernity discourse or anything like that. We're just losing 400 years or 500 years worth of right, tradition. Right. This is the way that it always was. And we want to keep it yeah. that way as much as possible. Is there, is there that sort of that sense going on with, Kaligat as well, that, the, that some of the pushback is about we're just losing a sense of who we are as as residents of Calcutta mm-hmm. or as goddess worshippers. Or, yeah, or, there is a little bit, you know, in terms of traditions, uh, say the Shavayats will be very protective of traditions of the temple and they don't want things to change. In terms of physical appearance, though, you know, this is a little bit of a tricky case because what really matters at the temple is Kali, that Svayambu Murti in the center. The temple itself, we know, is not ancient. It was built in 1809. Um, the courts, uh, the Calcutta High Court did at some point during the various lawsuits express some concern that any renovations or, or cleanup or whatever um, would exactly as you say, you know, ruin the heritage of the site. And so they enlisted the help of the Archaeological Survey of India, India, the ASI. Well, the ASI came and they ruled that there have been so many uh, structures added on to the temple over time that they can't actually determine what even the 1809 structure originally was. Um, And so so that actually, it, it, it would be hard to make an argument that you're preserving culture um, except that what, I mean, the people who are interested in heritage are, are the middle-class uh, citizens who say, we want this to be a bastion mm. of our heritage on the international stage mm. of, of the city. You know, this, this is a city mm. that people come to from all over the country and the world. Um, we want, and, and it even stated this in the uh, lawsuits, 
we want foreign tourists to be able to come to Calcutta and see something that we're proud of. Um, and we don't only want them to be able to see the Victoria Memorial, which fascinatingly, this memorial to a, a person, Queen Victoria, that Bengalis hate, um, is the most pristinely kept monument in the city. It's right in the center. Um, it's, you know, kept beautiful, shining white, uh, just like the Taj Mahal, which was the original intention. Uh, the lawn is vast and beautiful green, and it's always, you know, a perfect uh, inch in height. And so, yeah, we want what, what they say. They're terribly interested in heritage, and they say we want uh, tourists to be able to come to our city and not just see British history. We want them to see Hindu history. Wow, that's really interesting. So um, underline your book, um, um, because, you know, temple complexes, again, have the bazaar around mm-hmm. it, and you have people selling yeah. stuff all over the place. And so we have paintings, mm-hmm. you have books, you have newspapers. I mean, that's already underlying your book. I mean, did you see, uh, you know, like these type of printed media and whatnot are, have always been an integral part of furthering the agenda of these sort of different different versions of modernity. So, um, I mean, uh, how much of that did you encounter while you were doing your research? Like, I, I'm not only talking about historical material, but I'm just talking about when you go into a bookstore, when you go into a, you know, you're walking around and you're seeing a, a stall that's that's selling pictures of mm-hmm. Gali and books and flowers and stuff like that. I mean, you pick up these books and there's a tour book there that's saying, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, this is not, you know, uh, this is the way that it was, but it would be better if it were this way mm-hmm. now. And, and the temple board's making these sort of changes in this way and or whatever it is. Like, mm-hmm. do, you, do you see that type of stuff sort of, um, sort of as one way through which these sort of, discussions of modernity are, are are happening sort of quote-unquote on the ground yeah. level i mean even now with the sort of this large tradition of Gallicott painting mm-hmm. i mean is painting and stuff like that even being used or art being used even nowadays to convey these sort of competing versions of of modernity mm. around the top um well certainly pamphlets proliferate is and you know like little uh yeah you know what a, what yeah like four by that. six kind of little booklets uh, about the temple proliferate. Um, one of the really fascinating things about them is that they always talk about the history of the temple. They always talk about the historical origins. They're usually repeating one of the four stories that I talked about in my first chapter. So um, they're, they're, well, not necessarily copying, but 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 they espouse one of these uh, various views of the historical origins of the temple. Uh, they, of course, tell the Shaktipit story as well. Um, but they're not talking about, they're not producing, um, well, well, yeah, maybe that's just all there is to say, but, but, but yeah, they're, they're reproducing these 19th century ideas about the historical origins of the city in this kind of rationalistic historical way. Mm-hmm. I don't know about paintings, honestly. You know, when you walk around the area where the Patuas operate in Kaligat today, it's not exactly booming. Um, you know, they exist and they're producing, um, you know, uh, various devotional images of Saraswati or Ganesh or, um, or uh, you know, uh, Durga um, in some of the kinds of images that you see in Durga Puja Pandals. But they're not, um, they don't have this kind of critique that I'm talking about. Interesting. So as I think I was mentioning to you earlier, um, 
that uh, before uh, before the before we record the podcast that I was um, I've been noticing now that uh, there's going to be a new television serial yeah. being shot around Kalighat. I know because um, I've seen this movie at least three okay. times. It was a old 1976 <laughs> black and white uh, movie made in Calcutta mm-hmm. with very prominent. Bengali stage actors and, and movie okay. actors of that time period around the temple that focuses m- largely around the origin okay. history of the origin story of the temple and the discovery of the image and, and so on and so forth. So it's not really, it's not really sort of like a lot of other Bengali devotional movies where they're trying to encourage pilgrimage traffic towards a particular temple as much as a, they're talking largely about the manner in which the, 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 the temple came to mm. be. So is that going to be the, is that part of the new trend now in the sort of discourse, discourses of modernity around Galikad? Or have you seen anything similar like that through Facebook or Twitter or Instagram? Or what's the new, what's the new expression going to be around the temple other than just courts and pamphlets yeah. and NGOs? Yeah, no, I think I'm, so I'm really excited to see this television series. I have to figure out how to get my hands on it. Um, but they're still shooting they're still it, shooting so it's still it. okay. going to be. They're still shooting it. So um, as far as I can tell that they're still shooting it. So I haven't seen an episode. Okay. I mean, I just in what you're saying about the fact that it's the historical origins of the city that are the main stay of that film. And I think that film was based on a book by Abedut. Obudut, is that right? I I don't remember my get when I looked at it. Um, when I looked at the when I was looking at the credits, uh, the other uh, just last week again, um, it was just said that it was uh, the the great sort of Bengali theater personality, radio personality, Birinder Krishna Bhadra, who you know Bengalis all associate with the the now legendary Mahalaya program okay. that, that airs on on Akashvani on you know at four o'clock okay. in the week before Durga Puja. He's the one who compiled the stories. Wow, interesting. And then he did the he did the and then he did all the chanting of the shlokas mm. and so on and so forth, right? So he he's the one who it seems that he's the one, if I recall correctly, who did the um who did the compilation and then they, they did it together. And he was quite he was real he did that for a lot of um, Shakta and Vaishnavite devotional movies that were being produced in between the 50s and the 70s. Okay. So uh, that, so I don't think it was, I, I, I think it was him, but I can definitely double double check on that. For well, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah it, it's just um, fascinating in, in just what you were saying that what's being recalled is the historical origins of the temple. And I think that that really goes back to the reason I mean, the reason that Kali God is important is, of course, because Kali is a, a central figure in the lives of many Bengali Hindus. But it is also the case that Kali God provides this way of thinking about, about Calcutta that makes it Hindu, that makes it Bengali and not British. And I think that that is a kind of importance that you, that can't be discounted. Um, I should, oh, sorry. Uh, no, I was just going to say that my guess is that with a lot of these, like these movies that I've seen in the past, where uh, around Tarapit and so on and so forth, is that the emphasis is a cross between telling um, the story about the temple itself, and then at the same time interweaving it with with miracle stories of devotees, mm-hmm, either that mm-hmm, they've been made mm-hmm. up by the they've been loosely based on what the producer claimed are actual accounts or. Uh, uh, they're just completely made up stories, and they're mm. just claim about how these are 
completely imaginary and these are all just part of the dramatic effect that we react to the movement and so on right. and so forth. So like my my guess is that, you know, the, the new Kalikat television series, like all the other religious TV series have adopted this telenovela sort of uh-huh. format. So it's it's going to be a long 675 episode, oh some, you know, television series where I'm not sure how they're going to actually pull this off. But, <laughs> you know, my, my, but my guess is that the shift is not, is not just going to be, it, it, it will be about the history of the, the community, mm-hmm. but I think it's going to, it's probably going to be about domestic drama, which I think in terms of what you're talking about in terms of modernity mm. and expression of the middle, Bengali middle class values um, will be interesting to to sort of see what happens because you have to have a heroine and yeah. you have to have a hero and there's got to be a large sort of Bhadralok family, sure. even if it's a 20th, 21st century family around, you know, it's it, it, that all has to, to be there to keep people engage for 600 sure. episodes it's got to be something of a family, family soap opera oh, yeah. or family drama i i see an article in my future because i think that that would be a really interesting uh different angle um to take on this well um you can live blog about it as every episode comes out on every episode for however many episodes that this uh this television company decides to put up on you can see uh you can see clips for it on youtube actually okay. All right. so you can get a sense of where they're going where they're going to be going with this yeah. so I, I and when the article comes out i'll be the first one to read it. <laughs> I, I i guarantee you so i'll be keeping my eyes unless peeled you read for it, it first and then i would love to read it um, um no <laughs> it definitely won't be i'm still too stuck in in pushy mark to, to yeah. even think about anything about bengali right sure. now so Can I um, say one thing before yes. i just want to make sure that i get this in there i mean it's important to me that um you know when i first when the editors were uh my the publisher was getting back to me about um covers um so i found this beautiful image on Flickr, and i tracked down the photographer his name is luke bonici and he lives in the uk and so i was able um you know to to use his photograph but they wanted the cover of the book to be uh, a saffrony orange and oh interesting yeah and i realized from the title um i'm going to get flack from this title of the making of a modern temple in a hindu city um Uh... so so i want to make the point that What's happening at Kaligat and, and what I, because people always ask me, well, is it Hindu as opposed to Muslim? Because that's what everyone expects these days, right? It'll be Hindu as opposed to Muslim. Interesting. I argue that the the root of, of this discourse was about anti-colonial nationalism. It was about, this is a Hindu city as opposed to a British city. However, and so, and so that's why I did not want a saffron cover. I said, no, you have to make it red the color of Kali, mm-hmm. not the color of the BJP. <laughs> so, um, because, I mean, it's quite different. It's quite different. But I also make the point in the book that just because the aim of the narrative is to take back the city from the British, the effect of it may in fact be to take back the city for Hindus as opposed to anybody else. Um, and so with such a huge Muslim population, uh, with such a diverse city, yes, this is an anti-colonial, this, this is a Hindu temple as opposed to, this is a Hindu city as opposed to a colonial city. That's what the authors are saying. But at the same time, does that make Kaligat the image of Calcutta, the in, image of the indigenous Calcutta that erases 
other religious and non-religious options, right? And so the oh, consequences may in fact be um, to erase Muslim versions of the city, even though that wasn't the intention. And my interlocutors would be very um, upset by the, the sense that what they were doing at Kaligat was in any way anti-Muslim because they all see themselves as um, multiculturalists and very cosmopolitan and that kind of thing. Um, but, so, yeah. so there's no temporal, uh, from the sounds of it, from what you're telling me, there's no, there's no uh, ban on, on, as there is on certain temples in India uh, for non-Hindus. No, uh-uh. no and I've seen Muslims and Sikhs and all, yeah, no, they're, that's yeah. what I, that's mm-hmm. what I meant. Right. Right. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad. And it is quite a, it's quite a wonderful photo. So, um, I'm glad that you were also able to, to work in the name of your, uh, your source. Yes, for right. The photo yeah. <laughs> you did a great job. And your, point, and your point is, um, absolutely well taken. And I'm glad that you brought up that point because it did not even, uh, honestly, it did not even occur to me. I expect it to come out to in the reviews. The title of the book. Yeah. I, you know, I think it will come out in the reviews, but, um, yeah, but, and I address it in the book, but it's something that I did want to make explicit in this context too. Okay, so my final question for you mm-hmm. is: After Kalighat, what's next? Yeah, so I'm moving into uh, what appears to be a very different project, um, but is actually related in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm turning to business schools and especially elite business institutes, uh, management institutes um, in India and particularly in Calcutta. And the ways that Hindu ideas and practices and forms are being brought to bear on um, management pedagogies. Um, And and so the reason that this is similar to Kaligant in some ways is that Indian business schools are basically modeled on American business schools. So when India achieved independence in 47, um, the, uh, you know, you had this Nehruvian model of all of these public sector companies, and, and it became very clear pretty quickly that uh, India was going to need an elite class of business managers to run all of these uh, corporations. So they turned to MIT and Harvard and they said, okay, what's a world-class business education like? Let's bring that here. So it's the imposition of another form of Western dominance that is mm. producing mm. and ha- has mm. started to produce in the 1990s and the early 2000s um, a set of faculty that is rethinking that uh, that dominance and saying, okay, well, is it the case that this is just the best kind of education that, that exists and so we should use it? Or is it the case that there are cultural factors that determine the ways that, say, Americans do business that we don't necessarily need to follow? What is it that we want to keep and what is it that we want to get rid of? And there's a, a, a much smaller segment, and this is a, a sort of a controversial strand within elite business schools, but there's a small strand that's saying, well, why don't we turn to the Vedas and Upanishads? Why don't we look at um, Hindu yes. models of, of exchange, of the economy, of, um, of ideas about investment and return on investment? Why don't we think about um, those texts, look at those texts to think about an Indian model that might productively uh, temper or even um, replace an American business model, and so it's another it's another setting of okay, there's Western dominance, and here are some Hindu forms that are being taken up to counter it in really interesting ways. But then the other piece of the first project that I'm picking up on is this uh, sense of how religion and economy are intertwined, because of course at the business schools they have to train their students to make money and, and you know to have productive businesses. Well, interestingly, while I was doing work on Kaligat, what I noticed was that these modernizers 
we're looking at, you know, as I said, the priests of the temple, and they're saying, it's really inappropriate that they are making money from the temple. They, they should not be allowed to profit from Kali. But they're also saying, well, we do want to make this into a tourist site, which would mean we want private companies as well as state bodies to, to, to you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. hotels and restaurants um, and uh, booths for the, for the selling of ritual accoutrement. We want right. people to make money from religion, just not the priests. And so there are all sorts of fascinating ideas about ideas about how religion and economy can or cannot intertwine, right? Like rules that are being produced in this moment about how religion and economy can be intertwined. Um, ideas about religious subjectivities, the role of the corporation um, in the world-class city, projections of Indian culture that I see happening at Kaligat, but also happening at the business school. So it, I hope that it will provide some fruitful comparisons there. Well, I'll be definitely looking forward to that as well. So um, on that note, I'm going to end the podcast. Dioni, thank you for being on the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. So it was lovely being able to talk about your book, uh, The Making of a Modern Temple in the Hindu City, Kalikat and Kolkata, which was published by OUP, Oxford University Press, in 2018. Thank you Thank so you much. very much. To our listeners, thank you for joining me on the New Books in Hindu podcast. The podcast is part of the New Books Network, brought to you by Amherst uh, College Press. If you'd like to know more about the New Books Network and the range of podcasts that the network offers, please visit www.newbooksnetwork.com and please subscribe to the network on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever app you use to listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm your host, Shandeep Saha, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Athabasca U. To learn uh, more about why Athabasca University has been the world's leader in open education, visit www.athabascau.ca. Until next time, thank you for listening and thank you for sharing your day with us. Thank you.